Governor Holcomb is well-supported but unknown. A controversial speaker draws protests at IU. That plus a new revenue forecast, Senate fundraising numbers, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending April 14th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, a national poll pegged Governor Eric Holcomb's approval rating at 54%, while more than a quarter of Hoosiers don't know what to think of the new Hoosier chief executive. Numbers from the morning consult governor approval ratings put Holcomb's approval at 54%, which is middle of the pack among the nation's 50 governors. Only 19% of Hoosiers disapprove of the job Holcomb's doing. That's fifth best in the country. Yet 27% of those polled didn't know enough about Holcomb or had no opinion, the highest such measure in the nation. And that seems to be a trend with Hoosiers. In a morning consult rating of all 100 U.S. Senators, Joe Donnelly was third and Todd Young sixth for most unknown, no-opinion responses. Do Hoosiers know enough about their elected leaders? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwanis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. And Delaney, why don't more Hoosiers have an opinion of their highest elected politicians? I, I don't find this surprising at all. I mean, for years in this state, I mean, we're the lowest turnout of voters of any state in the union by design. Okay? We don't make it easy to register. We don't make it easy to vote. We don't make it easy to do anything to participate. And if you're not participating on Election Day, which is when the height of all the activity is, why are you going to pay attention to it the rest of the time? This is a design that the Republicans have adopted for the last, I don't know how many years, to make it as difficult as possible. And that's why the numbers are what they are, and that's why people don't know what's going on. If you're Governor Eric Holcomb, 54% is, is, is about what he got elected by, uh, but more than a quarter just don't have an opinion, don't know what to think of Eric Holcomb. Is that a good number at this point? Well, I don't think it's surprising. I think those are really positive numbers for Governor Holcomb. I mean, let's all remember he had a 100-day campaign, and he's now been governor for just over three months. And so to be at 54 percent and only a 19 percent on the disapproval, um, I think that that's incredibly positive. I'm, I'm sure that over time his numbers are going to increase even more. But, um, I mean, he has not had that much time and space to to you know, raise his name ID and for people to form opinions, but he's already doing great things and, and have, has very positive numbers. Um, conversely, I think that Senator Donnelly should be very concerned, and I'm not surprised by those numbers either, because I feel like he does not have the kind of statewide presence that you might expect. Oh, he's been he's very, he's very well known among activists and you know, maybe local officials, but among the broad electorate, he doesn't have that high of a profile. And so doing, that's going to be problematic for him going into next year the, because he's, he's not very those, defined. 
He's doing the town halls around the state in sharp contrast to any of the Republican candidates who are running from the voters. And I, I think the problem is exactly as I have defined it. We do this deliberately in Indiana. And it isn't surprising that people think that the system is rigged, which it is by gerrymandering, and don't pay as much attention as was, they could. Uh, do you remember, was the poll registered voters? I mean, millions of voters are showing up, and so they have millions some opinions don't. or don't. Millions don't. Should, given that Todd Young and Eric Holcomb are both new to their jobs, although Todd Young's been in Congress for a lot longer, um, but it, it, should Joe Donnelly be a little worried about that high don't know number? Well, I think the, the argument is uh, legitimate that he should be concerned because he has been in office for nearly six years as a senator and before that in Congress. So I do think that um, there should be some concern. But I don't think it's um, concern that, that should be beyond the pale or panic at, at, by any means. Uh, I think Ann raises a good point. Uh, he has been visible. He's been visible on some very important issues to people in Indiana, like Hoosier or like Veterans Affairs. Um, and I think that, you know, as the campaign plays out, uh, he'll have his opportunity to build additional name ID. Now, it, the thing he really ought to be concerned about is a very concerted effort by the Republicans, both at the state level and at the national level, to try to define him for him. And, you know, to the extent that there are undecideds there, he needs to be in front of that. And um, it, it's going to be a race to who can define Joe Donnelly. And talked about the fact that, that a lot of Hoosiers, I mean, we, we typically have rather low uh, voter turnout the numbers. Lowest. We had the lowest in 14, but not in 16. Oh, but, wow. But. <laughs> Second lowest in 16. But. It, it, because of that, is is the don't know number a little less important in this state than it would be other others? No, I don't think that's the sole factor. I looked at all of the numbers for all fifty states, and it's you can, as with so as is often the case with numbers, you can probably draw just about any conclusion you want to draw. But the uh, there is no mistake. Indiana and Eric Holcomb had the highest percentage of any state and any governor in the do not know or no opinion category. Right. Only, a, only three other governors actually were in the 20, anywhere in the 20s. Every, most of them were actually in the single uh, digits. So, and they weren't all, the, the four in that, in that uh, you know, category, four out of four in the 20% up, do not know, were not all uh, in the same boat in terms of newly elected uh, yeah. governors. So I'm not sure what to read into that. The, the good news, I guess, for Eric Holcomb is that he was elected with 52% on election day. And if, if you had your choice, would you rather go up from 52 or go down from 52? He's up, which on how they he's up to 54, too. which maybe is in the margin of, of error. Um, but it's, um, so I don't think it's necessarily bad news. Uh, it probably suggests what we already knew, that the coattails were long, and a lot of people who turned out and voted and put Eric Holcomb in office they may not have been as familiar with him as they were yeah. with the person they were voting for at the top of the ticket. You know, I think in terms of the Senate races, I think Donnelly and Young are the same. You know, everybody knows somebody named Young, and nobody wants to admit they don't know who their senators are. The same way with the governor. If they ask, what do you think of, do you have an opinion of Governor Eric Holcomb? And he has not done anything outrageous yet, certainly, except his flip-flop on Obamacare was the only other thing that he had done wrong so far. But, I mean, everybody knows somebody named Young, so I don't think it's any big deal. I, just, I mean, the 54 number is a great number in such an early start, and he has 27%, right, room to grow. Uh, so I think or, it's very or positive. Or go down. 
<laughs> Hundreds of people gathered outside a hall on the IU Bloomington campus this week to protest a controversial political scientist who was speaking about his most recent book on the presidential election. Charles Murray's lectures have sparked similar protests on other college campuses around the country. The First, Southern Poverty Law Center calls Murray a white supremacist and says his research is based on racist pseudoscience from Nazi sympathizers, eugenicists, and advocates of white racial superiority. People had called on Indiana University to cancel the event, and when that didn't happen, students showed up to protest his presence. In a statement before the event took place, IU spokesperson Margie Smith-Simmons said, As an institution, Indiana University cultivates an environment where a broad spectrum of ideas can be expressed and different viewpoints respected. Jennifer Hollowell, should speakers like Charles Murray, who are uh, espousing what some would say are racist views, should they be invited to speak on college campuses? Well, first of all, let me say the protesters also spent a considerable amount of time protesting the police um, that evening. But, uh, look, I think that IU did the right thing in inviting him, and I think they did the right thing in not canceling the event um, at the call of some of these protesters. I certainly don't think that they should limit their speaking uh, roles to people that only that group of protesters would approve of. Um, I went to IU. There were a lot of different speakers when I was at IU. There were plenty that I strongly disagree with. And, you know, it's not to say that I don't think there are some people who should not be invited to speak, but I do not think that that is the case in this scenario. I am glad that it didn't turn out to be quite the mob scene that it was in, in Middlebury. And, you know, I think also should be commended the police and others for keeping it under control. And, you know, they have the right to protest, that's fine, but I think that IU made the right decision. We've seen a lot of calls around college campuses in the wake of the Trump election uh, with speakers being invited to speak and, and, and sometimes violent reactions to those speakers. Should colleges try to be more discerning, if you will, in who they choose to invite to speak? I don't think so. I think the First Amendment guarantees this. And if not at colleges and universities, where are you going to hear the diverse ideas? That doesn't mean you have to agree with them, and you're certainly free to protest without the violence any speaker that you want to hear and, and to demand that people with opposite points of view also be presented. But I, th I think it was the right thing to invite him. I don't agree with him, but I think it's the right thing to invite him, and I think it's the right thing for those students to protest, and I think that's exactly how they ought to be spending their time in school, judging which ideas they want to, want to adopt and which they want to reject. I think that's a good thing. Jennifer acknowledged there is some limit. What's, where's the line? Where do you see the line? Well, I think that that's a difficult uh, determination to make. Um, we use terms like anti-Semitic and racist in, in such loose terms these days that it's hard to, um, to, to determine exactly uh, where that line of no crossing is. Um, I would say that it's sort of like pornography in the sense that, you know, what you the know Supreme Court said, it. you know it when you see it. And as abhorrent as, as uh, his views may be, um, I don't think he crossed that line by any means. Uh, and I think he, he had a ways to go before he crossed that line. So uh, I'm going to agree with everyone here, and I'm going to say that the definition is difficult to, to make, but uh, we would know it when we saw it. This, this brings up this, this whole issue of this, that's arisen in the last few years of these, this idea of safe spaces on college campuses. And I mean, doesn't that in many ways go against the whole point of what college should be about? I think, uh, I'll make it unanimous here, I think, and I have no problem uh, taking a stance when it comes to First Amendment issues. I'm probably the most 
uh, absolutist, uh, obnoxiously absolutist here. So to me, we will stipulate. I think. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Counselor. I think when you get a university, a public research institution that's founded on on, on the notion of diverse ideas and the marketplace of ideas, the whole thing should be a safe uh, zone by definition. Uh, that's where you, and I mean safe for ideas, not safe from ideas. Um, so maybe I'm maybe I'm not buying into the right concept there, but. Uh, whoever said, if not on a college campus, where? That's where you should have the most vigorous, robust debates. And you know what? The best way, if you disagree with somebody's argument and you think that it's a foul argument, you think it's a hollow argument, you know what? The best thing to do is let that person put the microphone in front of them because then that person will hang himself or herself with his own idiocy and, and ideas. The worst thing to do if you disagree is pretend that it, you know, it's not there or people aren't smart enough to hear it because then they might be wowed by it. That's a bad. Let, let people with bad ideas prove themselves to have bad ideas in a public setting. Yeah. And, and that's, so I'm glad he was invited. I'm glad he spoke. And I'm glad protesters were able to voice their concerns as well. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should public colleges and universities invite people with potentially racist viewpoints to speak on campus? A yes or B no. Last week's question was, is Senator Joe Donnelly betraying Democrats when he voted for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee? 41% say yes, 59% say no he didn't. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash iwir and look for the poll. Indiana's new revenue forecast this week is slightly more optimistic about the state's fiscal picture for the next two years, but House and Senate fiscal leaders say it doesn't change their budget plans. The April forecast gives Indiana budget writers an agreed-upon total revenue number as they finalize the state's two-year spending plan. This year, that conversation is tangled up with the road funding debate. The forecast delivered to the state budget committee projects about $200 million more million than the forecast from December. Senate budget author Luke Kenley says that number doesn't change things for him. There's certainly not enough revenue gain to justify moving the sales tax on gas over to road funding and creating a big hole in the budget. The House proposed moving that gasoline sales tax to pay for roads. The Senate eliminated that shift in its plan. House budget author Tim Brown doesn't think the forecast changes the road funding debate either. Do you feel like when you uh, fill up your tank uh, and pay for gas, should all the tax that you spend on that product be dedicated to roads? That's philosophical. John Katzenberger, $200 million may sound like a lot, but does it justify any big moves? Uh, no. I, I think the important thing to remember here is $200 million is a lot of money. $32 billion is a lot more money, and that's what we're talking about in terms of the entire budget. So really, $200 million is not that much. And so the legislature understands that it can't fund new programs, uh, that whatever it decides in the last week here is in terms of its funding priorities and how they fund the road program or uh, education or whatever else is still being looked at, um, they don't have a lot of flexibility. And this is really the same situation they found themselves in the beginning of the session as well. Uh, uh, Luke Kenley said it, it, the, the new forecast, the $200 extra million doesn't justify moving the sales tax on gasoline over, which is, of course, the biggest fight between the House and the Senate, I would argue, this session. Is he right? Well, the argument, certainly for those who, Luke Kenley and, and Tim Brown and others who would just assume not change the, dramatically the, the, the argument points, uh, the key points at this point, would point to what we know about the past and what we don't know about the future. And by that I mean, if you look at history, 
and you look at patterns of economic expansion and economic growth in this state and, and nationally and globally, we've on a pretty good run here. And, and history would suggest that we can't sustain that run, again, if history is an accurate guide, through the biennium. That at some point there would be a contraction and the, and the markets would start to contract, which would certainly perhaps mean a dip. Uh, in revenues for the state. That's what we know about the past. The other part of the equation is what we don't know about the future, and that is not just the economy, but again, the new administration in Washington. Uh, we, we don't, you know, we saw chapter one, and I think it's only chapter one of the battle over the Affordable Care Act with chapter two, three, four, five, and, and if an item to come, and we don't know what kind of federal dollars will be there, for instance, for Medicaid programs and other sorts of things uh, by the end of the biennium. So I think, again, history and future both argue for conservatism as it comes to this budget. If the new revenue forecast made it easier for the Senate to say no to shifting the sales tax, does it also make them harder? Because there is a little bit of money. Does it make it harder for them to say no to further expansion of the pre-K pilot program? Well, I, there are a couple of different things that people are really wanting to see some, some expansion on. You know, one of those major ones is road funding also. Uh, perhaps there is some wiggle room there. But it, I think that the forecast can support the position that you've already, that you've already taken. And it's smart to be prudent um, when, when dealing with this. And, and so perhaps it doesn't change much at all. But, you know, Republican leaders, House, Senate, and the governor are going to want to continue fiscal responsibility and make sure that we can manage also what things may come down uh, in the future with changes in federal government, um, needing more funding potentially for DCS. I mean, there are all kinds of things that, that may be um, needs in the future. After this forecast, which is more likely to happen? The House gets its road funding number? Which, which the Senate lowered, or the House gets its, the House and the governor get their pre-K number, which the Senate lowered. How about neither of the above? I mean, if you start with the premise that government should do nothing, or as little as possible, and that what they want to be is a bank, so that they can show a surplus, so they can advertise it as a great place to come, which is what they do. But you know, the kinds of businesses that come here, we're not getting technology, we're not getting the, the jobs of the future in here, largely because we put so little emphasis on our infrastructure and our education. They're going to do neither. They're not going to fully fund the road program to the extent that they need to. What they're going to do is leave a gap. They're going to raise taxes. They're going to raise them. There's no question about that. But then they're going to try putting tolls on roads as a way to fund it for roads that we've already paid for once. Um, and that's going to be their approach. And I don't think preschool is going to be expanded. At all? Not beyond the... Uh, that uh, no, maybe not at all. Well, it seemed to be a minimum of at least three million dollars. Uh, well, which yeah, is, which that's, funding, which that's is the not Senate. at all. It, well, it's hardly it's hardly worth talking about that number. It's it really doesn't it doesn't even begin to address the problem. They don't want to address the problem. They don't want to address it. They don't want to look at the research that says the preschool is good. They want to say you know we don't, we don't want to spend the money on it. There are certainly some in the Senate who have that opinion. Including Senator Kenley. Including Senator Kenley. We got our first look this week at fundraising numbers in Indiana's 2018 U.S. Senate race. It's inside Congressman Luke Messer, a potential Republican challenger to Senator Joe Donnelly's re-election bid, announced he'd raised more than $700,000 in the first quarter, ending with more than $1.6 cash on hand. Donnelly, the Democratic incumbent, raised $1.3 million in 2017's first quarter. That's his best fundraising period since just before the 2012 election, when he was elected to the Senate. And it puts more than $2.5 million in his campaign war chest. 
Congressman Todd Rakita, another potential Donnelly challenger, finished March with a little less in the bank than Messer, about $1.5 million. Fundraising numbers for attorney Mark Hurt, the only Republican to officially file to run for Senate so far, weren't yet available. John Schwannis, what do these numbers tell you at this point in the cycle? That there are two well-funded challengers, uh, which we certainly know, uh, and you would expect that from incumbent members of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, it could be a bloodbath if they both decide to dip uh, deeply into those funds uh, during the primary. Uh, and as I often joke, you know, if you're a party boss in, in either party and you have a contested primary like this, you and there's no avoiding it. You say this is great. It's going to be these can't, whoever emerges will be battle tested and and will be hard, you know, harder to beat. That's baloney. You know, you just if you give them truth serum, they would just as soon say, save the money, Easy save the bruising. Them. You would have uh, truth Just turn the camera off. Okay, turn the camera off. <laughs> same, same sort of thing. So, so clearly, um, the the numbers actually, and it, well, I think a lot of factors beyond the numbers argue toward a Donnelly uh, strength right now. Midterm election, any kind of referendum on the new president, any sort of dissatisfaction. And that's not just with Trump. I mean, look at every incumbent president in midterm elections. Right. It tends to be a disconnect or a rebuke of the parties uh, that share the affiliation of the person in the White House. Which number was more important to see, the, the Messer-Rokita numbers or the Donnelly number? I think the Donnelly number is important, but I also think that uh, he's shown himself quite capable as a candidate, and so the support will be there uh, from the Democrat uh, infrastructure. Uh, but look, when you see both of those um, members of Congress with well over a million dollars um, and and posing toward each other to um, a race, my question is, where is Senate leadership going to come down on this? Because Senator McConnell was well behind Senator Young uh, throughout the process. And I don't know that he could make that same kind of a choice, given a potential showdown between Representative Rakita and Representative Messer. Uh Todd Rakita's number in the first quarter was much smaller than Luke Messer's, so he started with a little more in the bank than Luke Messer did. At what point does Todd Rakita have to become a lot more serious about this oh, Senate I think race? He, has, he certainly has to step it up, but he has a tremendous advantage. I mean, he's the only one that's run statewide. Uh, so he's uh, obviously much better known within the party hierarchy than, than Luke Messer is. So if he can raise a similar amount of money, he doesn't have to overwhelm him, but he has to be in the ballpark of the fundraising, and it looks like he is, or at least he can be, then, then they could have a very interesting primary, and I wouldn't be at all uh, certain of the outcome. Given the numbers, is everything lining up for Luke Messer here? At least in the Republican primary? Well, I mean, that first quarter number is a, is a significant haul, um, without a doubt. And so I think, I think the most important point, really, is while it is important for these candidates to raise money and have their own money in the bank that they can spend on advertising that they can control, at the end of the day, this race is not going to be about money. It's not gonna, that's not going to be a deciding factor, and the vast majority of the money spent on the Senate race is going to come from outside groups. Yeah, what the candidates right. have is going to pale in comparison to the money that will come in that's from outside right. groups, because Senator Donnelly is the most vulnerable uh, senator well, in the we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. We'll see about that when Trump gets through with what he's done in the next year and a half. A form, speaking of Donald Trump, former Senator uh, Dick Lugar this week sharply criticized President Trump's foreign policies. In a speech in Washington, the longtime Hoosier senator blasted President Trump's foreign policy goals as, quote, simplistic, prosaic, and reactive. 
Luger, a Republican who served 36 years in the Senate, said Trump has delivered a vision, quote, lacking in ambition and devoid of heroism. Luger criticized the president's immigration policies, including his proposal of a wall on the southern border, his past remarks about NATO, and his budget proposal to cut State Department funding by a third. Luger also called Trump's goals ones, quote, normally associated with a selfish, inward-looking nation that is being motivated by fear. And, Eleni, with all due respect to Senator Luger, uh, but do these sort of remarks have any impact in his party anymore? Are you saying that his party is no longer a thinking, intelligent mass? <laughs> I don't think that's what I was asking, but do you oh, think that, that, well, that think his that party is listening to someone like Richard Luger? I think that there are uh, a, there is a significant element of the Republican Party that is appalled at what's going on in Washington and uh, will listen to Senator Luger. I mean, I know he lost the primary to whatever his name was, Murdoch, who then yes. imploded. But nonetheless, he had a very significant vote in the Republican primary after 36 years in office, which is by itself remarkable. So, uh, yes, I think his voice, uh, it, and it appeals not just in Indiana. Uh, yeah. He has a reputation nationwide. Does, does his, do these remarks, does Senator Luger still carry weight in the GOP? Well, I don't, I don't think it influences these decisions. I have deep respect for Senator Luger, um, but on this issue... You know, political solutions haven't worked in Syria for years, and uh, President Trump is getting praise, bipartisan praise, um, on the action that he's taken. I think really the question is, what is the long-term plan? What are the next steps? That's what most people are thinking about, and we don't know that long-term plan yet. Because he doesn't have one. That's the problem. All right. Finally, Mental Health America of Indiana held its annual fundraiser this week called Hoosier Idol, in which lawmakers and state officials perform for a crowd of, let's call them, willing victims. Uh, those performances including dueling, dueling Elvis impersonations by Bruce Borders and Attorney General Curtis Hill, Jennifer Hollowell, is the State House big enough for two Elvises, or Elvi, I suppose you would call it? Well, I actually have an Elvis costume at home, and I think the State House is big enough for... Oh, my. <laughs> All right. Wow. Well, that's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwanis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana Week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.